there. Welcome to the Tennis Podcast. My name is Nick. I'm Brandon. Happy birthday! Not to me. Happy birthday! To who? Harry Potter. You don't know? No. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. It's trending on Twitter. Happy birthday, Harry Potter. The day we're recording this... Oh wait, we're not supposed... To... We're live, aren't we? I what? forgot. What are you doing? What's going on? Today is Harry Potter's birthday. Okay. According to Twitter. That's it. I'm just saying happy birthday, Harry Potter. That wasn't going anywhere? Well, it is, but it's falling apart on me as we speak. Yeah, it is. What's... <laughs> tell people... <laughs> I don't know what's going on here, but why don't you tell everybody uh, what we do in this podcast? On this show, the show you're listening to right now is the Tennis Podcast. And on this show that you're listening to right now, I bring a top 10 list and Brandon tries to guess what that list is. Yeah. Or... Or the opposite happens. So, this week it's your list. Yes. And the Harry Potter thing was a happy coincidence because my list today mm-hmm. is a little Harry Potter related. Oh, today, no. it's, if it's not specifically cu- about Harry Potter, we got to go back and <laughs> redo this intro because you look like an insane person now. No, it's Harry Potter uh, influenced and that is the best selling fiction authors of all time. Okay. See? Harry Potter's in that, right? Well, he's not the author, but yeah. Okay. This is fiction authors? Fiction authors, and it's all time. It's based on global sales, and that's sales as in the number of books sold, not the amount of dollars. Okay. Give me some excitement. Give me some feedback on my list choice here. Oh, I'm, I'm like, okay, cool. I, this is something I can guess. I'm not... My temperature hasn't risen. My heartbeat hasn't increased. I don't have a flagging erection, but... Whoa! But it does sound like it could be fun. Well, I have some saucy, controversial, risque topics we're going to touch on today from some surprising people. Okay. Let me tell you about the list though. This is, I'm reading this from Wikipedia now. While finding precise sales numbers for any given author is nearly impossible, the list is based on approximate numbers provided or repeated by reliable sources. And in this case, Best-selling refers to the estimated number of copies sold of all fiction books written or co-written by an author. And this list is ranked based on the author's maximum number of estimated sales. Because in some cases, there's a range. Like 200 to 400 million, for example. Okay. They are ranked based on their max. Um, And so, my sources are Wikipedia and Insider.com. I think that's it. I'll say this is a 10-ish podcast. Today, you're going to guess the top 11. And I have the top 20 in front of me. I'm going to say that you've heard of mm, six or so out of the 11. The rest I might have to just give you. I might surprise you. Anyone you want to immediately rule out from being in the top 11? No, there's too many to rule out. I'm guess J.D. Salinger is probably still not hanging in the top 11. No, not in the top 20. Did Anne Rice somehow sneak into the top 11? No. Hmm, Interesting. You're off to a great start. Well, you, you said ruling them out, dumbass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, these are the ones that would not be on the list. I'm just ruling them out. I'm having an off day today. I think you might be drunk. You sound drunk. <laughs> no, I'm just not in the zone. I came straight to this podcast recording from a very stressful situation. Very stressful so beat off session. Yeah. Well, uh, ball shaving with the manscaped. Uh, well, it's not supposed to be stressful. Now you're messing up your endorsements. Yeah, fuck, you're right. It's supposed to be a cool, like, relaxing 90-minute ball shaving experience. Use promo code 10 at manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping. Right. 
All right, you ready to guess? Yeah, I'm just going to go for it. Okay. Is James Patterson in the top 11? No. He's just outside the top 20. Hmm. How about Danielle Steele? <laughs> Where do you think she ranks? Number four. What the fuck? You're looking at Wikipedia, I'm aren't not, you? I haven't looked up anything. I've just got my piece of scrap paper here. Did you make a deal with the devil or a witch this, recently to have like foresight? The second one I wrote down was Danielle Steele. Yeah, but how'd you know she was number four without some sort of voodoo witchcraft magic? I don't know. This might be the 98th episode we've spent doing this. So, uh, I've got some wow. good guests working. Okay. Danielle Steele, she is number four. Who is Danielle Steele, Brandon? I'm not quite certain. I feel like that name might be a pen name. But it's uh, an author who does like crime novels, like crime mysteries, I think. My... No. <laughs> not at all. No? <laughs> She's a romance novelist. Oh, it's romance. She's one of those authors when you're in the, like a Walmart and you see all those books with like That's really... That's where I know it from. Saucy covers of like men with their shirts off and stuff. Oh. That's her. I know that there are also some big authors that have a ton of mystery thriller type novels and they just churn them out and I thought I remember seeing her name on one of those but no her name no there are others like that her name goes under Fabio yes and he's got exactly. he's got a young broad like hanging at his legs clamoring for him and the wind's blowing his hair yeah and he's like a mantar or whatever <laughs> that is Danielle Steele to a T uh, D mantar that's the that's centaur. the half horse centaur okay sorry or what's a mantar then well, man you're thinking of minotaur Oh, Minotaur. Minotaur has like a bull man top half. Oh, baby. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you need to shake your head like an Etch-A-Sketch. Okay, let me tell you about Danielle Steele. She's number four. She's sold up to 800 million books. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of fucking books. Yes, I agree. Okay, so she's wrote 179 romance books. Some of her most notable works are A Promise. That's one of the ones that stood out that I'd recognized. Um, she was born Danielle Fernandez Dominique Julian Steele. Uh-huh. Easy for you to say. Uh, so, she has like six names in her legal name. She was born in 1947 and she's still kicking. Still writing books? Oh, yeah. Oh. She has produced several books a year, often juggling up to five projects at once. Meanwhile, you and I can barely juggle one one-hour recording per week. You can't handle one sentence at a time. It's true. I'm not even denying it this week. I'm the sidekick host this week. Uh, despite a, quote, resounding lack of critical acclaim, <laughs> according to Publishers yes, Weekly. That's kind of, that's the impression I had. Yes. She's one of those where she'll churn out. She's got a very loyal fan base, but there's very little depth right. or originality to her books. Um, her formula is fairly consistent, often involving rich families facing a crisis, threatened by dark elements such as prison fraud, blackmail, and suicide. She's also, and naturally, when you hear me say the sentence I just said, your next question is like, but she's probably written children's books, right? And the answer is yes. She's published, published children's fiction and poetry. So, there you go. Her books have been translated into 43 languages with 22 of her books adapted for television. Notice they're not movies. <laughs> television. <laughs> Her adaptations have received Golden Globe nominations as well. She's currently on her fifth husband. So, she takes the uh, spirit of her romance novels to heart, I think. Uh-huh. And despite a reputation among critics for writing fluff, 
Steel often delves into the less savory aspects of human nature. Oh, Listen I'm to sure this list. she gets down into the fucking dirty, dirty crotch of society. This is a direct copy and paste from Wikipedia. Incest, suicide, oh, divorce, yeah. war, and even the Holocaust. Whoa, she does? <laughs> She's not supposed Apparently. to do that. I don't know where the Holocaust comes in. And my last note on Miss Steele, listener of the show, is that she launched a new perfume in 2006 called Danielle by Danielle Steele. <laughs> so oh, that she's sounds just, about right. She's riding the gravy train. What's your favorite Danielle Steele book? I uh, couldn't name. I didn't even know the one that you said you had heard of. Well, that's because you're not a reader. You just... Well, not of that, no. Okay, so that's Danielle Steele. Okay, I got more guesses. Yeah. How about John Grisham? No, not in the top 20. Holy shit, I'm in trouble. Okay, what about like stuff that they make you read in school that everyone would also have to buy, like Shakespeare? Some of that. Is that your guess, Shakespeare? Yeah, Shakespeare in the top 11. He might be. What number? Is this units sold? Yes. Oh, probably number six. One! Oh. You did it, you magnificent bastard. Old Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> and my, oh my, do we have so much to talk about with Mr. Shakespeare. A lot more to talk about with Shakespeare than Danielle Steele. Yeah, and despite her output being like six times Mr. Shakespeare, there's a lot more interesting depth to get into with Mr. Shakespeare. Have we ever touched on William I don't think Shakespeare so. in our show? He, I know that okay. he could have been like a multiple people. Mm-hmm. He invented a bunch of words. Hell of an ass, too. And he's dirty. Well, William Shakespeare is number one with at least two and up to four billion units sold. Mm -hmm. um, that's among 42 published works, usually plays and poetry. And his most notable works are Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, King Lear, Hamlet, and a bunch of others. You know William Shakespeare out there. Everyone knows who he is. He was... Born in April 1564, and he died in 1616. He was an English playwright, poet, and actor, widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's greatest dramatist. But it was not always that way. William Shakespeare's renowned work, uh, well, what's a better way to say that? His uh, critical acclaim uh -huh. is actually somewhat recent, relatively speaking. Did you know that? As recently as when? When did we start kissing his butt and started thinking he hung, he hung the moon, liter literally, literary speaking? So, which is it, Brandon? Literary speaking? I don't know. Okay. My note says that Shakespeare was not revered in his lifetime. Between the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 and the end of the 17th century, classical ideas were in vogue. As a result, critics at the time mostly rated Shakespeare below John Fletcher and Ben Jonson, among others. But by 1800, he was firmly enshrined as the national poet. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, his reputation also spread abroad. So around the 1800s is when he really started to give America and the world a, a big old boner for his... I think he was too, like, wild for his time. Too, like, risque, mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote for those, like, common man, those, like, the idiots who used to go in the theater and, like, think everything going on was real and they would scream and get really into it. I think he wrote for like kind of common man, but he wrote really well. You know, in the 1500s, we've kind of mentioned this before, but in, in the entire history of the world before like 
the 1900s, the world fucking sucked. And it just got progressively less sucky. Everybody was until, covered with mud and poop. Yeah, exactly. And people were starving and you could die from a simple ear infection or a paper cut. It just was a bad time. So, imagine living in that environment, but you decide to write plays. Be too worried about the fleas on your knees. Yeah. Most jobs in those days were, um, you know, hands-on, like jobs people need, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? People need food, so you make food. Or people need clothes, so you make clothes. There wasn't a lot of jobs that were just for the sake of entertainment. But old, old Billy Shakespeare, that was his calling and that's what he did. <laughs> just like you and I. Right. I think we've been called the Shakespeare's. Give us, give us some more facts about old Billy Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. He's often called England's national poet and the bard of Avon. Or is it Avon? Or simply the bard. Avon. His plays have been translated into every major living language and are performed more often than those of any other playwright. At the age of 18, he married Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And not Anne Hathaway that we know today. No, thank you for... Had... <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> No, she's not a vamp, a centuries-old vampire who once wed Shakespeare. Well, you're making some assumptions now. We don't know that. There's the actress and then there's, um, well, there's only a drawing of Anne Hathaway. I looked her up. Yeah, she's pretty hot. We don't know very much about her. I know. Her drawing is pretty hot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime between 1585 and 1592... He began a successful career in London as an actor, writer, and part owner of the playing company called the Lord Chamberlain's Men, later known as the King's Men. I think I skipped a line. He did have three kids with Anne Hathaway, Susanna and twins Hamnet and Judith. Mm -hmm. At age 49, this would be in the early 1600s, he appears to have retired to Stratford where he died three years later. So, he was a young man when he died. And that is a topic of discussion we'll get to in just a minute. How he died? He died at like 52. Right. Are we going to talk about how he died? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. But before I tell you, I'm going to tell you kind of what you were saying before about his wife that not much is known. The same is true for him. Few records of Shakespeare's private life survived. This has stimulated considerable speculation about such matters as his physical appearance, his sexuality, his religious beliefs, and whether the works attributed to him were written by others. Right. I've heard that before. Have you before. ever looked into that theory? I've heard about it. That's a fun rabbit hole conspiracy to dive in, yeah. Just for the sake of time, I didn't really get into it today, but there's definitely theories out there that Shakespeare either never existed or that he was one of many using the name Shakespeare. And mm -hmm. you know, speaking of the religious beliefs, it's kind of interesting that Shakespeare got away with them as much as he did in his writing that was pretty, you know. Pretty nasty for the day? Pretty, what kind pretty of, nasty what kind for of the stuff day. was too nasty for the day? I don't know. Weren't there like affairs and shit happening? Oh, I don't Wasn't Romeo and Juliet? No, nobody. There was no affairs know. in there. They were, they were from warring, feuding families. Uh, okay, so where was I? His early plays were primarily comedies and histories and are regarded as some of the best work produced in those genres. And until about 1608, he wrote mainly tragedies, among them Hamlet, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, King Lear, and Macbeth all considered to be among the finest works in the English language. Yeah, they're great. They obviously haven't read Animorphs. I read some of it in high school and I cannot understand uh, Shakespeare without... They do, that, they do a version where it has like a translation into regular people English off to the side 
and I can only read it if I have that version. If I go to, I've been to Shakespeare plays and I cannot understand what's going on. Can you? No. But just the way it's said is so beautiful. Yeah, sure. Well, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think I remember hearing that people of the day didn't actually talk like that. No. That's the... Because I know like when you're a kid and maybe even most people listening to us right now, I don't know, but a lot of people think that the plays were written that way because that's how people actually talked in those days. No. But that's not the case. Part of the entertainment was the audience hearing things spoken or performed the way that they were written, this stylized way. Yep. Yeah. So, Shakespeare, he died uh, just before his birthday in 1616 at the age of 52. Uh-huh. Now, here's what's interesting about it. He died within a month of signing his will, a document which he begins by describing himself as being in perfect health. No contemporary source explains how or why he died. Nobody knows how he died. Poisoned. From the little evidence we do have, it seems he was in good health. He was a relatively young man. It's so easy to fake a will in those days, by the way. Yeah, where are you going to like carbon date it? Well, how do you not fake a will now? I guess that's true. I guess it has yeah, to be know. notarized. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, but even that. There's some kind of yeah, official I mean, process saying like, well, he, he just wrote his will down and stuffed it in a drawer. Like, now you write your will down and you give it to a lawyer. Like a lawyer? Yeah. Do you have a will? Uh, no, but I think I need to make one. I meant do you have a will to survive? Like the will to live? Yeah. I got the will to at least finish this podcast. I haven't made it past there. I don't know if I even have the will for that. We're going to find out. Of the tributes from fellow authors, one refers to his relatively sudden death, quote, We wondered, Shakespeare, that thou winced so soon from the world's stage to the grave's tiring room. I feel like they tried to mimic his style and just (laughs) was almost like a backhanded compliment. (laughs) It wasn't very good. Speaking of backhanded compliments, Shakespeare, his will, scarcely mentions his wife, Anne, who was probably entitled to one-third of his estate, uh, entitled to his estate automatically. He did make a point, however, of leaving her, quote, my second best bed. What? A bequest that has led to much speculation. What did he mean by that, Brando? Well... Nobody really knows. He probably just meant the bed that had, like, less hay left in it, you know? (laughs) Less hay stuffed in it. There were less bed bugs on it than the other one. Yeah, it has more mouse turds in it than hay now. <laughs> I think that's how they, um, they cushioned beds back in those days. They just filled it with mouse turds and dead mice. Eventually, yeah. Last note on him uh, is that he was buried in the chancel of the Holy Trinity Church two days after his death. And it was carved into the stone slab covering his grave that anybody who moved his bones would be cursed. And because of that, when the church was, there was some restoration construction in, in 2008, uh-huh. they did all of it while avoiding to disturb his grave. Oh. Because nobody wanted to be cursed. they were afraid of, of the curse? Yeah. They should have just Wouldn't had you? somebody who didn't know about the curse move it just a little bit, see what happens to him. <laughs> and go from there. Yeah, and go from there. Or they could just, they could not disturb it at all like they did. And that also worked. Mm, okay. Now, I know you're kind of on the fence on the like spirits and ghosts and demons. It's stuff. not very scientific well, not. to not trick someone into moving his cursed bones. Are you going to have a curse on your grave, you think? I don't know. Is all you have to do, all you have to do is have it in writing somewhere near your bones? 
Yeah, I don't know what the rules are. Is it that you just write it down and use the word curse in the writing or does it have to be like blessed by a witch or something? I don't know. Or blessed I, by a warlock? It has to be stamped by a notary public. <laughs> no, I, I have gone on record saying I don't care what happens with my body when I die. I don't care what you do with it. Can I have it? Well, no, you don't get first dibs on like what we do with it. You don't get to pick. It's basically whatever. No, can, can I just have it? I just want your body. Whatever my family wants to do with it, they can do with it. But You don't consider me family after a 98 episodes? I think I know you more than your own family does. Hey, let me ask you this. You know, William Shakespeare, most scholars and people agree that Shakespeare was a brilliant writer. But how many people from his time do you think could have been just as, if not more brilliant, but by the time they sat down to write it, they're like, wait a minute, I have to fucking hand write this on... <laughs> you think what stopped great works to being written is that they just had to do it by hand? They had to use a, a quill? I would never fucking do it. I mean, even if you were doing it with a pen, it would suck. But with a quill? If you couldn't dictate it to someone, it just wouldn't be worth it. Was the printing press around yet? Not yet, right? Yeah. It was? Okay. Yeah. They had the Gutenberg press. Before the Gutenberg press, you had to hand write every... Like, if you wanted to sell Copy a book, you had something. to handwrite it each time, yes. right? Right. Can you goddamn imagine? <laughs> <laughs> it's like you stumble upon, like, kind of givens about history <laughs> when we record this and it just fucking blows your mind every time. Well, imagine if this podcast, every time someone listened to it, we had to redo it each time. You don't just mass... It would be a one-time only deal. <laughs> okay. Did you know Shakespeare's direct bloodline ended in 1670? There is no living direct descendants to uh, Shakespeare. I'm looking at his portrait and he doesn't look like a guy who strikes me as having like really strong genes. Now, do you mean genes that can withstand like playing tackle football with the friends in the field? Or do you mean genes... That he probably has like <laughs> weak, immobile sperm. Wow. Now, he had kids, but his kids didn't have kids. They didn't have any boys. They got worse as it went along. Yes. Okay. So, you're looking at a picture of him. Tell us, is he hot or not? No. He... he wow. Hot take? He has... I don't know what that would be called. It's not a four head. It's not even a five head. It's a seven or an eight head. Holy shit. Well, I maybe just, that's just the artist. Well, I mean, this is nearly every portrait of him. He's balding, but he, he isn't doing it very gracefully. He grows out the sides and the back pretty long. He has a pointy mustache. I'd say that's hot. And he's wearing what looks like some kind of an air filter around his neck. <laughs> like a floating device? <laughs> for... Yeah, or a floaty. But you know, I'm looking at another portrait of him and he looks pretty good in this one. Well. He looks like he might belong on a Danielle Steele cover in that one. Yeah, sure. These guys are all really sexy in their own way. <laughs> all right. Well, I think it's time to move on. Give me another guess. How about well, J.K. Rowling? Yes. Happy birthday, about, Harry Potter. So, she would be, I'm going to guess, number two. Nine. Number nine. But despite her being so low on this list, mm -hmm. uh, she has the fewest books. I'm, do you remember Danielle Steele at 147 or something like that? Right. J.K. Rowling has 15. So, she's definitely sold the most per book in the top 10. Right. So, Jay, is it Rowling or Rowling? Rowling. You don't know. 
Okay, so J.K. I, well, Rowling... I've only heard it pronounced like fucking 900 times as Rowling, so sure, I don't know. Yeah, but your mind's going, your memory's going, we can't trust it. J.K. Rowling has written 15 books, most of them in the fantasy genre. Her first name's Joanne. She was born in 1965, better known by her pen name, J.K. Rowling. She's a British author, screenwriter, producer, and philanthropist. She's best known for the Harry Potter series, which has won multiple awards, and that series alone has sold more than 500 million copies, becoming the number one best-selling book series in history. Yeah. By the way, that reminds me to mention, I wrote this down, back in episode 20 of this tennis podcast, we covered the best-selling book franchises of all time. Harry Potter is number one. Spoiler alert. Do you want me to tell you more about Joanne Rowling? Yeah, I would love to know more about Joanne. I only know a couple things about her, so... Let me see yeah, if I can I pronounce this. She was born in Yate, Gloucestershire. Uh-huh. Could be made up town for all I know. She was working as a researcher and bilingual secretary of Amnesty International when she conceived the idea for the Harry Potter series uh, while on a delayed train from Manchester to London in 1990. The first novel in the series, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, was published in 97. There were six sequels of which the last, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, was released in 2007. But since then, she's written five books for adult readers uh, and also some true crime fiction under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith. Did you know that? No. How did those sell? It doesn't say, but I've never heard of any of these books. So, it, uh, The Cuckoo's Calling, The Silkworm, Career of Evil, and The Lethal White. Yeah. I don't know nothing about them. Yep. So, Rowling has reportedly lived a rags-to-riches life in which she progressed from living on benefits to being named the world's first billionaire author by Forbes. But uh, she's disputed that she was a billionaire, but she lost that status because she's donated <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars to charity, which makes her not a billionaire. So, well, that would be good. Yeah, that, no, no, it is good. Even if you were a billionaire, I would not like to be known as a billionaire. I wouldn't like to be known, period, especially not known as a billionaire. Well, then you should quit this podcast soon because we're on our way to podcast billionaire status. <laughs> the first podcast billionaire making Joe Rogan look like a punk? Yeah. Well, J.K. Rowling, she is the 178th richest person in the entire United Kingdom. But it did, she wasn't always that way. Like I said, she went from rags to riches, right? <laughs> oh, she wasn't always one of the richest people in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Keep going. I mean, if you can believe it, God, you are the mean one today. You know, people always say that Nick's mean to Brandon. It is opposite today. Jesus. <laughs> she wasn't always the richest person around. Okay, just keep going. <laughs> it's true though. In 95, when she finished the first manuscript for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, the first Harry Potter book, mm -hmm. it was typed on an old typewriter. The book was submitted to 12 publishing houses, all of which rejected it. But they are kicking themselves now. Mm -hmm. A year later, she was finally given the green light and a 1,500 euro advance <laughs> by Bloomsbury, uh, a publishing house in London. So, the decision to finally publish the book was owed to Alice Newton, an eight-year-old daughter of the Bloomsbury chairman, who was given the first chapter review by her father and immediately demanded the next. So, he said, must be a good book. Get that J.K. Rowling on the phone. Offer her 1,500 euros in advance. Well... Obviously one one, one more note real quick is that they, okay. when they signed the book, they advised her to keep her day job since they didn't think there was a ton of money in the book. So, I guess my question is, if they didn't have much faith in the book, did it sell out a lot at first and then they like started to market it and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger? Like, yes. 
immediately people read it and were like, this is the shit. I'm going to tell everybody I know. I'm going to buy another copy. So, no, because I wore out my first one. That's not what happened because she originally published with Bloomsbury, which doesn't say this, but I'm kind of getting from context that they're kind of a smaller publishing house. But Mm -hmm. once the book was published in June of 97, it was initially printed with only a thousand copies. 500 of those copies were distributed to libraries. And by the way, those copies, those original first edition copies are worth up to 25,000 euros each right now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, five months after that, the book won its first award in Nestle Smarties Book Prize. And then in early 98, an auction was held in the US for the rights to publish the novel, which went to Scholastic. This is where it gets ah, big. Okay. Scholastic gave her $105,000. And in October 98, they published Philosopher's Stone in the US under the title Sorcerer's Stone, which J.K. Rowling mm-hmm. has since said she regrets letting them do that. That's where it all started. The rest, as they say, is history. But the last book in the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, was released in 2007 and broke its predecessor's record for the fastest selling book of all time. Uh, it sold 11 million copies in the first day of its release in just the US and UK. But get this, this is so interesting to me. The book's last chapter, like the last chapter of the entire series of Harry Potter, was one mm-hmm. of the first things she wrote. So, when she was first coming up with the series and before the first book was even published. Just seems interesting that she would know the characters that well and their whole path. That's like what I'm how saying. how they end up there. I don't know. Maybe she, obviously, she's got some kind of talent. Or she's lying I and she just it. said it's the first thing she wrote to sound cool. I don't know. That would really chap my hide. But if it's true, and I have no reason to believe it's not true, that she wrote the last chapter first before any of the books were published. That's incredible because so much happens between, yeah, and who's, and and, you know, maybe she edited it or something before the last book. I don't know. I'm very skeptical of you, JK. This little Harry Potter series worked out for old JK because it's now a global brand worth an estimated $15 billion and the last four Harry Potter books have consecutively set records as the fastest selling books of all time. The series totaling over 4,100 pages has been translated into 65 languages. The Harry Potter books have gained recognition for sparking an interest in reading among the young at a time when children were thought to be abandoning books for computers, television, and those fucking damn video games. Although it is reported that despite the huge uptake of the books, adolescent reading has continued to decline. (laughs) So, you can't survive on Harry Potter forever. Wouldn't you think that if you loved, if you're a kid and Harry Potter's like the first recreational reading you've done and you Mm -hmm. loved it, wouldn't you assume that, okay, I'm going to look for a new book to read? But no, that's not what happened. A lot of those people, a lot of those young kids read the books and then just stopped reading altogether. Yeah. It's what else do I got to do? When someone asks me, what is your favorite book? I got seven of them to choose from. Well, this next line I think is about you. Okay. Because it says, over the years, some religious people, particularly Christians, uh-huh. they've decried Rowling's books for supposedly promoting witchcraft. <laughs> sure. But JK says that she identifies as a Christian and she once said, I believe in God, not magic. Early on, she felt that if readers knew of her Christian beliefs, they would be able to predict plot lines of characters in her books. Now, I've not read the books and I've only seen some of the movies. Uh But my take from that line is that she's saying that the main characters in the books follow a similar plot line as some of the main characters in the Bible. Uh... Harry Potter dies, right? Spoiler, but... Yeah, but like, 
I don't know. I only saw the movie, so maybe I didn't understand it very... He died, but, like, making him come back didn't seem like any big deal. Like, him dying didn't seem to be, like... I just didn't understand why it was this huge sacrifice because it was just immediately apparent that, like, he was going to come back. And when he did so, it was so easy. By the way, not to get on a thing here, but that's the whole reason (laughs) it's the same for Jesus. Yeah, I guess I can kind of see that. But no, I... If I knew she was a Christian, I still wouldn't have, like, tried to guess the ending of the book based on the fact, like, I don't know, I I think she's just maybe up her own ass a little bit too much. Whoa! But lately, I saw she's in trouble because she says... Yeah, I haven't been keeping up on that. I just keep seeing her name in headlines, but... She's really digging in her heels on there being only two genders. And, like, I guess maybe she's trying to speak, like, biologically, but... Other people don't take it as just biological. There's other factors and I'm of the mindset that if like, if somebody is happier saying that they're one way or another, I don't really care. It's, that's all fine with me. But she, I guess, is pretty butthurt about it. I think she just thinks that there's only men and only women and that people who don't feel like they're one or the other are confused or something. You know my take? When it comes to transgender people or gay people or atheists or whatever, just let people believe what they want to believe and do what they want to do. And if everyone had that mindset, we'd all probably be better off. Yeah, it seems like she's fairly liberal-minded just up to an extent. And then she's like really (laughs) on social media dug in her heels and she's like, no, this is where I take a stand. Yep. Well, why don't you give me another guess? Um, How about Dean Koontz? Mr. Dean Koontz, the poor man Stephen King, I call him. Uh-huh. He is uh, number 18. Oh. How about Agatha Christie? Uh, yeah, what number? Oh, really? <laughs> Eight? She's number two. Holy shit, why? Oh, because it's all time. And there used to not be anything to do back in the Victorian <laughs> era. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Wait, Agatha Christie was alive in the 1900s. Whatever. (laughs) Shit was more boring. She died in 76. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about Agatha Christie. Other than that, she has a really sexy name. Wait, what? Agatha? Agatha. (laughs) Agatha Christie's number two with up to four billion units sold. Do you want to know the name of the genre that she writes for? Uh, What? Whodunits. Yeah, whodunits. Yep, she's wrote 85 of them, including most notably Miss Marple, which is an Amazon series, and the Hercule Poirot detective series. That's the detective in The Orient Express, the movie that came out like two or three years ago. Right. It's based on an Agatha Christie book. There's a ton of movies and TV shows based on her works and you might not even realize it. Right. So, Agatha Christie, who was she? She was born in 1890. She died in 1976. She was an English writer. I think we've only covered English writers so far, haven't we? Yes. No, Danielle Steele's American. (laughs) The worst writer that we've covered so far is the one American. Yeah. Okay, Agatha Christie is regularly referred to as the queen of crime or queen of mystery and is considered a master of suspense, plotting, and characterization. In addition to her many books, she also wrote the world's longest-running play, The Mousetrap, which was performed in the West End of New York from 1952 to 2020. It only stopped because of uh, the pandemic. She's also wrote six novels under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott. And kind of like J.K. Rowling, Agatha Christie was initially an unsuccessful writer with six consecutive rejections. This changed in 1920 with The Mysterious Affair at Styles, featuring detective Hercule Perrault, 
which was published in 1920. Her first husband, Archibald Christie, that's where she got her last name. They married Mm -hmm. in 1914. She had one child. Now, there's some really interesting stuff about Agatha Christie. I knew next to nothing about Agatha. How about you? Next to nothing. Okay. Uh, Well, wait. I do know that at some point when she got divorced, she disappeared for a while. Yes. But before we talk about the disappearance, during both world wars, she served in hospital dispensaries, uh, acquiring a thorough knowledge of the poisons which featured in many of her novels, short stories and plays. And she married a archaeologist, Max Mullawayan, in 1930, who she spent several months each year on digs in the Middle East and used her first-hand knowledge of, her profession, of that profession in her fiction. So, Agatha Christie's not just a little housewife sitting at home writing fun stories. She's at archaeologi- archaeological <laughs> digs. Archaeological? Thank you, Jesus Christ. She's serving in both world wars and she's disappearing. Actually, first, more than 30 feature films are based on her work. And according to Index Translate, Translatinum, as of 2020, she was the most translated individual author of all time. I'm surprised she's more translated than Shakespeare. One of her books, and then there were none, was the best-selling crime novel of all time with 100 million sales of that one book. Now, let's talk about this disappearance. Agatha Christie's husband, Archie, asked for a divorce in 1926. On December 3rd of that year, the pair quarreled after Archie announced his plan to spend the weekend with friends, unaccompanied by his wife, the bastard. Wait, he just asked to go hang out with his friends for the weekend? Yes. And she was like... I'll show him. She went off the deep end? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that apparently was the breaking point. Oh, he had already asked her for a divorce too, sorry. It yes, wasn't just that he went to go hang out with his friend. Yeah, but he asked for a divorce in August and this happened in December. Oh, okay. I mean, it's all related. But she disappears, it becomes a news story. The press sought to satisfy their readers, quote, hunger for sensation, disaster, and scandal. Yeah. More than a thousand police officers, 15,000 volunteers, and several airplanes searched the rural landscape. They even gave one of her gloves to a medium, a spirit medium, to help find her. (laughs) Did giving her glove to a psychic help? I'm going to guess, no. Surprisingly, no. Despite the extensive manhunt, she was not found for 10 days. Finally, she was located at Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Yorkshire. Enjoying some baths or something. That's what I like to do when I disappear for 10 days and make the whole world crazy with wondering where I am. Crazy with sensational uh, lust for, what was it? Uh, For scandal. Sensation, disaster, and scandal. Don't you think that the the hydropathic hotel would have just been like, hey, she's here, guys. She's right there in the other room. But maybe they had no idea. I mean, was she checked in under the name Agatha Christie? Oh, you know, I think she wasn't. This is back in the day where you could just say my name's like Fievel Fliesenharf and you could write it down and they'd be like, oh, uh, this is, uh, no, 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 this is Mrs. Fliesenharf. I guess they, you're right because she's a writer in the 20s. They might not even know her face. Well, also they're like, uh, woman writer. <laughs> the fuck are you lying about? Uh, okay, <laughs> well, lady who's on the run and lying about being a writer, sure, write your name down here. Yep. Uh, okay, but did you know that Christie's autobiography makes no reference to the disappearance? So, this is a huge media event. It's 10 days. No one knows where she is. Yeah. She's not an idiot. I mean, I'm sure she knows people are looking for her, but 
No reference in her autobiography. She doesn't want to talk about it. Two doctors diagnosed her as suffering from an unquestionable, genuine loss of memory. Yet opinion remains divided over the reason for her disappearance. Some, including uh, another biographer, believe she disappeared during a fugue state, just like Walter White in Breaking Bad. Oh, that's right. I remember he, he says he just fakes that he can't remember where he was. Yeah, he calls it a fugue state. Fucking, that's the beginning of Walter's bullshit. Yep, now I gotta watch that show again. Damn. Sorry. All right, Brandon, so you have number one, William Shakespeare. Number two, Agatha Christie. Number four, Danielle Steele. Number nine, J.K. Rowling. How about Stephen King? I was saving that, but now I feel like I need to start pulling out all my stops. What number would you say Stephen King is? Number seven? 21. He's not in the list. J.K. Rowling has sold more books than Stephen King? Yes. Yes. And Stephen King has like 50 plus novels. That just shows you how powerful Harry Potter is. Yeah. Um, and Dean Koontz, who's the poor man Stephen King. Sorry. I mean, I've read a few of his books. They're pretty good, but poor man Stephen King. He's higher. 18. But I think he's written more too. Holy... Blake... I had no idea. I know who Dean, like I vaguely know who Dean Koontz is, but I would never would have guessed that he sold more books than Stephen King. Yeah, I was surprised too. Has, have any of his books been made into TV or movies? One of the more recent ones that I'm aware of is Odd Thomas. Yeah, never heard of it. Yeah, he's definitely had stuff, but not to the level of Stephen King. I mean, my best guess to why Koontz is higher is number one, he's written more books. And number two, his books are much more appealing to both young adult readers as well as the general public. Stephen King's books can be a little abrasive <laughs> to, uh, you know, your sweet dear Aunt Sally. Are you telling me that Dean Koontz hasn't written himself into a corner that only a children's orgy uh, in the sewer could, <laughs> could get him out of? Uh, people bring up the children's orgy a bit. That's from the book It, by the way. Mm-hmm. But they always leave out a critical part that you included, which is they were also in the sewer during, <laughs> during their kid orgy, yeah. which is not nothing. It wasn't in some like swanky hotel room. <laughs> no. So, yeah, but Stephen King, number 21. Okay. I don't agree with it, but that's what it is. Well, Shakespeare, how about Dan Brown? No. He wrote those um, Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code and uh, the Robert Langdon series. Okay, probably Rob, not yeah. The Twilight Lady, right? No, I think that is a fair guess though because, I mean, those books were huge. They sucked, but they were huge. I was going to guess The Twilight Lady and The Fifty Shades of Grey. I think it was a woman that wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, right? That sounds right and no to both. Okay. Also no is Suzanne Collins who wrote The Hunger Games. Okay, yeah. I didn't know her name either. How about Louis L'Amour? No. Who's that? Uh, he wrote westerns. My grandpa had like bookshelf after bookshelf of these like little Louis L'Amour westerns. Now, be honest. When you say your grandpa, you're really talking about yourself, right? <laughs> no, although I, like I said, I am like kind of interested in picking one up, but not interested enough to have done it yet. Well, let me tell you, of the ones remaining, and don't forget we're doing the top 11 here. Mm -hmm. I think two, maybe three. You could guess. The rest, I really doubt you'll guess. Okay. One of them, I'm very surprised you haven't guessed. Okay. Let me go through the rest of the guesses that I have jotted down and then okay. you can start to lead me down the primrose path. 
A primrose path. You got it, buddy. Okay. Uh, how about Jane Austen? Hmm. I, I had not considered her. Good guess, but no. Tom Clancy? Another good one. No. Michael Crichton? No. The two big ones that I was surpri most surprised were Crichton and King. Yeah. Crichton is Jurassic Park, by the way, for those listening, and a yeah. bunch of other famous books. Clive Cussler. No. How about, I tried some children's authors that I thought might have been big. How about... There's two children's authors. R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein is number 17. Oh, fuck. Mr. I don't know his first name. Animorphs. No. <laughs> You're telling what me there was one name? guy named Animorphs who wrote that whole series? <laughs> Anamorph. Well, Anna. Anna's oh. a name. Yeah, I guess that could have been it. And by the way, to our listeners, if you don't know what Animorphs is, just do a Google search and enjoy the covers. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is in here. He's number 11. And that's why I wanted to do the top 11 because I wanted to talk about Dr. Seuss. Right. We've, have we mentioned him before? Yeah. On our Jim Carrey episode, we talked a little bit about the movies Carrey did in the Dr. Seuss universe mm -hmm. and it got my gears going and there's so much interesting stuff with this man. <laughs> Basically, this is all so we could talk about Dr. Seuss. This is pretty much it, yes. Yeah, that's fine. I've done lists for less. You know, given the cultural significance of his books, the mm -hmm. fame of just his name and his top stories like The Cat in the Hat, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Lorax, Horton Hears a Who, among many others, I really thought he'd be like number two or three or something. But 11, still, still high, still high, but just whatever. Dr. Seuss sold at least 100 and up to 500 million books. They're all children's literature. There's at least 60 of them. Uh, and his full name is Theodore Seuss Ted Kiesel. Seuss is, uh, I guess, a middle name? Yeah, it is a middle name. Mm -hmm. uh, but did you know it's actually pronounced Seuss? Rhymes with voice. I did recently hear that and I refused to accept it because... I also refuse to accept it, yes. Although you keep trying to push Genghis Khan on us and none of us are fucking buying no, it. No, that, so. that's not me. That's um, Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. Nope. Uh, it's you. I'm just his acolyte. <laughs> fucking acolyte. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Well, about his name, Giesel's most famous pen... Giesel is Dr. Seuss, by the way. Are you saying Diesel? Giesel, like Diesel but with a G. Oh, okay. That's his real last name. And okay. so, as I'm going through my notes, you're going to hear the name Giesel a lot and it's Dr. Seuss. Yeah. His most famous pen name is regularly pronounced Seuss, an anglicized pronunciation inconsistent with his German surname, which rhymes with voice. He switched to the anglicized pronunciation because it, quote, evoked a figure advantageous for an author of children's books to be associated with Mother Goose. And because most people use this pronunciation, he added the doctor to his pen name because his father had always wanted him to, be a, to practice medicine. He wasn't really a doctor. Oh, so he was giving unlicensed medical advice in these books. <laughs> yes. Like, uh, what's that book about? Uh, there's one of his less famous books that has to do with butter. The it's butter like butter battle? town or something. Is that it? Yeah. Think of all the butter advice he was given. Yeah, he should have shut his fucking mouth when it came to butter. <laughs> <laughs> butter is going to cure it all, he said. Now, if, if we were talking peanut butter, that's something I could get on, okay. on board with. But just butter, no. Let me tell you about Dr. Seuss, though, this faker. He's like Dr. Phil. Remember Dr. Phil's not even a psychiatrist anymore? Another charlatan. Now we're way off. Theodore Seuss Giesel was born in 1904 and he died in 1991. 
He was an American children's author, political cartoonist, illustrator, poet, animator, screenwriter, and filmmaker. His work includes many of the most popular children's books of all time, selling over 600 million copies and being translated into more than 20 languages by the time of his death. His first book, do you know the name of his first children's book? I don't. Was it One Fish, Two Fish? No. Uh, his first children's book was And to Think That I Saw on Mulberry Street. Oh. Came out in 1937. During World War II, he took a brief hiatus from children's literature to illustrate political cartoons, and he also worked in the animation and film department of the United States Army, where he wrote, produced, or animated many productions, including Design for Death, which later won the 1947 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Best Propaganda? What was it? Do you know? Design for Death? Let's see. Yeah. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you. Documentary film based on a shorter U.S. Army training film that had been produced in 1945 for the soldiers. Both films dealt with Japanese culture and the origins of the war. So, yes, it sounds yes, like, it I sounds bet like that propaganda. Is Dr. Seuss racist as fuck propaganda, <laughs> World War II propaganda film. Oh, I bet they have the worst caricature. I would really want to hunt this down and find it. Well, it's out there. It won the, an Academy Award, so the uh, general public also ate it up. It wasn't a Dr. Seuss thing, only. Uh, but anyway, after the war, he returned to writing children's books. <laughs> I like how he takes a break from writing children's books to write anti-Japanese propaganda. <laughs> and then as soon as the war's <laughs> over, he's like, back to children's books. He returned to children's books writing classics like If I Ran the Zoo, Horton Hears a Who, If I Ran the Circus, The Cat in the Hat, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Green Eggs and Ham. What do you think is his most famous book? How the Grinch Stole Christmas or The Cat in the Hat. Yeah. Green Eggs and Ham is big too though. I bet that's third. It's probably The Cat in the Hat because that's his logo is The Cat in the Hat. Yeah, but I think as far as adaptations and film, it's definitely The Grinch, right? Yeah, The Grinch is pretty... The Grinch has almost... What he did with The Grinch is the same thing that everybody who is out there in the art world to make a buck, just like... Charles Schultz from Peanuts does very wisely is they make a Christmas version and if they make a decent one, it becomes part of people's annual tradition and you either get huge royalties or you're selling DVDs or copies of movies every year or the rights to movies every year. Uh, there's people out there who their whole career is built around, they wrote one Christmas hit. Yes. Like it could have been decades ago. And they ha now like they have a yacht and like three houses, you know, it's all built around a grandma got run over by a reindeer. Grandma <laughs> got run over by a reindeer. And for more on Christmas songs, check out our Christmas carols episode. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Dr. Seuss was very enterprising, I think, when he wrote How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah. He was an early adopter of capitalizing on Christmas. And it's funny because a lot of his books deal pretty explicitly with capitalism. Oh, really? Well, I mean, think about it. Like uh, Horton here's, uh, no, uh, the Lorax is all about capitalism, isn't it? Isn't that because the villain in that book, he takes the trees, trees so he, he can sell air. He's taking advantage of capitalism because air is free, but he's found a way to package it up just right and become a zillionaire, as the song says. Anyway, Dr. Seuss's books have included uh, numerous adaptations, including 11 television specials, five feature films, and a Broadway musical. Okay, so let's talk about Mr. Seuss's politics. Uh-huh. 
He was a liberal Democrat. So this is in like the, I'm assuming, well, let's see. He was, a, he was a supporter of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal. Right. The New Deal was pretty liberal idea. Yeah, the New Deal is, a, is definitely a left-leaning, more progressive type idea. Yes, it, it's more on the scale of like capitalism and socialism. Heavily towards socialism, it's taking public funds, the tax money, and diverting it to projects to employ the public and to create things for the public good. Don't tell that to a, a right-winger today. Right. The New Deal is where we got like the Hoover Dam and a lot of like buildings and like infrastructure for cities and stuff. Social security as well. Yeah. Imagine trying to get that passed today. If like it hadn't already been passed, it would not happen. Anyway, let's not get into that. He was a supporter of that though. Uh, Seuss was. His early political cartoons show a passionate opposition to fascism and he urged action against it both before and after World War II. His cartoons portrayed the fear of communism as overstated finding greater threats in the House Un-American Activities Committee and those who threatened to cut the United States lifeline to Stalin and the USSR, whom he once depicted as a porter carrying our war load. Wow. What do you think of all that? Uh, I agree with Dr. Seuss on a lot of these hot political takes. I think it I Wait, does that include the anti-Japanese propaganda, just to be clear? Oh, no, not that part. <laughs> not okay. that part. <laughs> it is amazing though like I love seeking out those like old uh, black and white cartoons where the characters are just super overtly racist because I don't know it's just um, it's just incredible how like disgusting <laughs> I love things that are like disgusting and horrible and creepy in general but I'm like even more interested when people turned it into something like cutesy for public consumption like calling it the Chinese flu <laughs> right well, you know, I'm, I read the next part of my notes here, which I had forgotten about. Maybe we're being a little too hard on Mr. Seuss for okay. his anti-Japanese because we were just kind of assuming that based on the World War II documentary. A samurai killed his family. The, <laughs> the note here says, after the war, uh, Dr. Seuss overcame his feelings of animosity using uh -huh. his book Horton Hears a Who as an allegory for the American post-war occupation of Japan, as well as dedicating the book to a Japanese friend. God damn. So, think about Horton Hears a Who. Is that the one where uh, a so, person's a person no matter how small, right? Yeah. That's a admirable bit of self-reflection. Though someone, uh, some guy, I don't know, Ron the Moth, Moth, noted in an interview that even that book has a sense of, quote, American chauvinism and doesn't mention the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagas oh, that's, that's kind of Nagasaki. fucking dark for a book about an elephant that talks. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Imagine if you're reading Horton Hears a Who with your son today, Brandon, and you get to the page where <laughs> America fucking bombs Hiroshima. That would seem out of place, wouldn't it? Yeah. Horton looked up into his surprise. A blinding white flash seemed to fill the skies. Hey, his friends good. disappeared here and there as they were hit by superheated air. They burnt and nope. exploded. Stop. Stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just watching everyone get hit with a nuclear blast around him. And, and then the rest of the book is blank. <laughs> There's no ending. It just goes blank. There's like six blank pages at the end. <laughs> It'd be like that fucking kid's book 
what is it? Good night, moon. Yeah, good night, moon. Remember, there's a we talked about this before, but there's a page in there. There's two pages. One page says good night, mush, with a bowl mm-hmm. of fucking mush, and the next page says good night, nobody. Yep. And it's a blank page. Yep. All I right. think I'm convinced that they just they had ended up with an odd number of pages, and they said, all right, be easy. Kids will love this shit. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> And they do. <laughs> yeah, I just read it the other day to my my dumb kid. All right. So, the line, a person's a person no matter how small, which mm-hmm. is from Horton Hears a Who. That's a good message, that line. However, it has been used widely as a slogan by the pro-life movement in the United States. Dr. Seuss and later his widow, Audrey, objected to this use. According to her attorney, she doesn't like people to hijack Dr. Seuss characters or material to front their own points of view. In the 1980s, uh, Dr. Seuss, Giesel, threatened to sue an anti-abortion group for using this phrase on their stationery, causing them to remove it. However, after Dr. Seuss's death, his, his widow Audrey gave financial support to Planned Parenthood. Good. So, the Seusses are kind of coming through here for me. How about you? Yeah, he kept his uh, opinion, I guess, to himself, but... Plus, like, person's a person, no matter how small. And applying it to that, like, I don't think anyone's saying that they're not a person. I don't know. Maybe we, uh... Let's not go in there. Yeah, maybe abortion is some water that's too deep for me to swim in. <laughs> I, think, I think the tennis podcast addressing abortion is a bad idea. We are a three feet of water podcast. That's true. And speaking of water... Uh One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, which came out in 1960. I'm going to talk about it here in like 20 seconds. But first, the Cat in the Hat and the following books written for young children achieved significant international success and they remain very popular today. For example, in 2009, Green Eggs and Ham sold 540,000 copies that year alone. Cat in the Hat sold 452,000 and One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish sold 409,000, all outselling the majority of newly published children's books that same year. So, books that were like 50 plus years old we're outselling new books. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So, Dr. Seuss died of cancer in 1991 at his home in La Jolla, California at the age of 87. And you know, on our recent episode, the Jim Carrey episode, you mentioned to me that Seuss had like beaten his wife or had some allegations of that, right? You remember saying that? Yeah. Uh, maybe I was getting confused with somebody else now that, <laughs> now that we're talking about it, but yeah. One of the many other millions of... Uh, Shitty authors yeah, of it. Yeah, shitty. I mean, an abusive alcoholic author is, you can't throw a, a brick without hitting one around here, yeah. They're a dime a dozen. Well, I, I looked, like I hunt, tried to hunt something about that down. Uh, couldn't find anything. And I'm not saying it is or isn't true. I did not find it. All right, well, let me tell you my last note on Dr. Seuss. He... Had a great career, sold hundreds of millions of books, wrote 60 plus children's books, some of those famous stories of all time, but I think he really missed out on his biggest potential of a story. I think there could have been a really successful book franchise from Dr. Seuss on the Brandon's Body Elves. Oh, my elves, yeah. Remember the elves that control, they push your piss out? Of- <laughs> yeah. How did it go? They would push the pee out of my body it kind of comes in like it almost looks like a big yellow log right and, they all and they're like, pushing it out they all and like, as soon as it hits the air outside it liquefies and right. then comes up right and they're like and he <laughs> if dr seuss made a book about him they would have to have 
like a name for whatever they yeah. were. And he, he never right. calls them like elves or gnomes. It's always something he made up like. But in your body, they would be called like the nur- the nurples or the numples. <laughs> yeah. The numples. Now, how old were you when you believed elves controlled your bodily functions? Like six or seven, maybe. 16, 17? Five, okay. six. six Five, six is pretty old to be believing that elves controlled <laughs> your entire body. No, just certain pieces. Oh, okay. There was like a couple sitting down in your stomach that are like ready to handle whatever comes down there, cheeseburger pieces or... <laughs> cheeseburger pieces. Yeah. yeah they're... Are they controlling your uh, pain sensors as well? No. That... <laughs> I... Don't be stupid. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah, I think a Dr. Seuss book series on, on these guys would have been great. Yeah, the Nurples. The Nurples. All right, that's Dr. Seuss number 11. And so now, now there's like seven more that you're confident I'm never going to be able to guess. There's one I think you could get because I know you know the book series. I don't know if you know her name. Her name, huh? Yeah. Let me tell you some other big names that are not in the top 11. We got Stephen King at 21, mm-hmm. James Patterson, J.R.R. Tolkien. You didn't guess him. What's wrong with you? Well, I didn't think he was up there. C.S. Lewis, who did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. Dan Brown, Stephanie Meyer, Suzanne Collins, Michael Crichton, Lewis Carroll. Who is that again? Alice in Wonderland. Yes. John Steinbeck, Patricia Cornwell. Edgar Allan Poe. What about him? Did he write like books and novels? I thought it was... Doesn't have to be novels. They were just short, fiction right? writers. Short stories, poems. Now, my next four, what about Ron L. Hubbard, the founder of Scientology? I wonder if because it's stupidly considered a religious text, it's exempt from this list? Yeah, where's the Lord? Yeah, God is on my list too. As uh, I have God, Zenu, Ron L. Hubbard, and Joseph Smith, the, the prophet of oh, Mormonism. The Mormon Bible, yeah. Zenu, who guided Ron L. Hubbard's hand in writing those books, should also be given co-author credit. And Joseph Smith. None of them are in the top 10. And now, uh, I'll give you 20 through 12 as well. Albert Pushkin, don't know who that is. Nora Roberts, who I think is a romance author as well, right? Mm-hmm. Dean Kuntz, R.L. Stein, Horatio Alger, or Alger, Jackie Collins, Corin Talado, Leo Tolstoy, Akiro Aoda. Easy for you to say. One of your favorites, I think. So now, let's see if you can get this one other author I think you might be able to get and the rest I'll probably just have to give to you. Children's author Richard Scarry. No, but it is. Richard Scarry, is that a real person? Yeah. No way. His name is Scarry? Scarry or Scarry? It's S-C-A-R-R-Y. Sorry, Richard, but you got to change your name if you're going to write children's books. Everyone thought Richard Scarry books and characters looked fine. Like no one else seemed to comment on like how strange they looked, but I always thought they looked fucking, everyone looked insane. Their eyes all look (laughs) wild. I'm looking at one. (laughs) They are the most terrifying books because they just seem like a normal children's book, but everybody is looking like they're on, everybody looks like they're on PCP. All right, everyone look up the, uh, take out your Google machine and look up Busy Town, like one word, Busy Town, by Richard Scarry, and that will give you a good indication of what Brandon's talking about. 
Yeah, busy town is the scariest place in the world because everybody is looking through you <laughs> at all times. I've never heard of this guy, uh, but he sold 100 million books. So he's I'm a- sending you a link to one of these on Facebook right now. You have to look at this guy. Look at this fucking worm. There's an earthworm wearing... <laughs> I've never seen anything like this. This is insane. This earthworm is wearing... A shoe. Like a shirt and pants and a shoe, but it's all just one long... <laughs> yeah, because he's still worm, a worm. Worm shape. He's trying his best to be a, a biped <laughs> like this cat has seemingly pulled off, but the cat, that cat is not going to blend into society with a look on its face <laughs> like that. This cat has seen some shit. This stiff-legged walk, a hand... <laughs> In what seems to be a Nazi salute, and these eyes with like a Vietnam shell shock stare, a slender man stare straight through you. All right. I'm going to put this photo on, on our socials at Tennis Pod because it, it has to be seen. So, I guess he's not at the top 11. No. Totally worthwhile. Okay. Let me give you one. Let me tell you number 10. Okay. Tell me if you've heard of any of these books. Have you heard of the Frank Merriwell series? That's the character's name? There's a bunch of novels starring the character Frank Merriwell. Absolutely not. Okay, well, me neither. But Gilbert Patton is number 10 with sales of up to 500 million adolescent literature, over 209 books in that. His most notice- okay. notable works is the Frank Merriwell series. But So, his name's Gilbert Patton. Oh, actually, it's William George Gilbert Patton because Gilbert's a good fucking nickname to give yourself if it's not your birth name. Uh, or you're going to call him Bill, Billy, Will, Willie, William? No, Gilbert. Uh, call him George? Now call me Gilbert. <laughs> I'll be Gilbert. I really feel like more of a Gilbert, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if you choose Gilbert over any of the other very reasonable names you just listed off, uh-huh. then... <laughs> you get what's coming to you. I don't know what to tell you. He lived between the 1800s and died in 1945, but he was a writer of dime novels with the pen name Bert L. Standish. So, no. his author name, his pen name was actually Bert L. Standish. That's a good Which mustache. is also a shitty name. No, Bert, St- Bert L. Standish sounds like a guy with a big chest, big arms, a flannel shirt rolled up over his elbows and a big mustache. Basically, the guy on the brawny paper towels. That's Bert L. Standish. Out yeah, there writing Bert. badass stories for boys. His character, Frank Melliwell, has appeared in over 300 dime novels and some were written by other authors with the same pen name. Uh-huh. That character has also been featured in radio dramas, comic strip, a serialized film in 1936. Anyway, that's pretty much it. But something that stood out to me is the first published dime novel from this guy, Gilbert Patton, was The Diamond Sport, published in 1886. Think about this. For something so weird to me about publishing a book in 1886 when mm-hmm. most people are still covered in shit and then this guy's still releasing books in up until the 40s yeah. when the world is just completely different. I don't know. That's it. Just kind of interesting to think about. Frank Merriwell is a tale for all ages. Yes. Okay. So, the one author I think you can get, we covered her book series, her children's book series in our best-selling book franchises episode. Mm. You know this series. I'm pretty sure you guessed it. So, think about the really famous kids series out there 
She's English. She was also born in the 1800s, 1897, died in 1968. Over 800 books of children's literature with 600 million sales in sales. She write like something I would recognize. She, yes. Is this who wrote The Secret Garden? Uh, no. I don't know. You're going to have to tell me. Naughty. Remember Naughty? Naughty? N-O-D-D-Y. Huh. Um, maybe you didn't guess that. I know we covered oh, it though. Oh, no. I just, I just looked it up and we have talked about Naughty before. The naughty. look of Naughty. On an episode where we've covered Dr. Seuss, we've covered Agatha Christie disappearing, we've covered William Shakespeare. This author is the most interesting on today's list. Okay. This is Enid Blyton, number seven. She was an English children's writer whose books have been among the world's bestsellers since the 1930s. Enid's books are still enormously popular and have been translated into 90 languages. She wrote on a wide range of topics including education, natural history, fantasy, mystery, and biblical narratives and is best remembered for Naughty, Famous Five, Mallory Towers, and Secret Seven series. So the sheer volume of her work and the speed with which she produced it was produced led to rumors that Blyton employed an army of ghost writers, a charge she vigorously denied. <laughs> an army of ghosts who can operate <laughs> typewriters? And uh, the, the phrasing there is, uh, it stands out, an army of ghost writers. She's Doesn't a, an army imply like tens of thousands of she's people? She's a fucking supernatural villain. <laughs> but she is. There is a lot of meat on the bone for this author here. Interesting. Uh, there's a lot of criticism against her. Blyton's work became increasingly controversial among literary critics, teachers, and parents from the 1950s onwards. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the alleged unchallenging nature of her writing and the themes of her books, particularly the Naughty series, which is her most famous, some <laughs> libraries, what? People were just <laughs> pissed off because she was just churning out bullshit. Pretty much. <laughs> She's like, yeah, that's for kids. Kids are fucking stupid. It's about an elf who goes on an adventure. Who gives a shit? People said the books were like as elementary as can be, but not just that because some libraries and schools banned her works which the BBC had refused to broadcast from the 1930s until the 50s because they were perceived to lack literary merit. That's a heavy accusation. <laughs> Especially uh, well, coming from TV. <laughs> yeah. Your books, your children's books, which there's not like a high standard as far as like intellect on children's oh books. Oh my God. No, they have buttons on them that make stupid noises, make lightsaber noises in the middle of a sentence. What are you saying? Books now, like books are so bad now. Oh, oh. But books are so bad now, they'll come with a plat, like half of it is plastic and takes batteries and plays awful yeah. little noises when you push the buttons and it's set up so in the middle of a sentence, your kid is going to reach over you and push the most annoying sound <laughs> in the world six different times. And then and when you try to turn the page to get this shit show over with, they force the page back down so they can push the buttons again. <laughs> yeah, that struggle. This happened to me tonight with yeah. my three-year-old. That cardboard page like starts to bend a little bit because you're both, <laughs> your desire to finish the shitty book and their <laughs> desire to stare at the little icon of uh, a train while they push the whistle <laughs> button again. Kids, man. So, not only are Enid Blyton's books criticized for lacking any literary merit, her books have also been criticized as being elitist, sexist, racist, and xenophobic. 
and at odds with the more progressive environment emerging in post-Second World War Britain. <laughs> she just checked all the boxes. <laughs> just wait, though. Despite all this criticism that we've all been talking about, uh -huh. the books have continued to be bestsellers. Now, Blyton's range of plots and settings has been described as limited, repetitive, and continually recycled. Many of her books were critically assessed by teachers and librarians, deemed unfit for children to read, and removed from syllabuses and public libraries. That's, this is I mean, heavy shit for a... <laughs> she must have pissed a bunch of people off because usually they let, you know, stupid books just fly under the radar. Yeah, who cares? It's a kid's book. But how bad does a kid's book have to be for people? Like, they sound really mad about naughty. Well, she is very naughty herself. And she's... Uh, I'm still getting to the best parts here. Okay. The works of Enid Blyton have been banned from more public libraries over the years than is the case with any other adult or children's author. Though such attempts to quell the popularity of her books over the years seem to have been largely unsuccessful and she still remains very widely read. I mean, they're literally naughty books now. Look, oh, Did you read a... what I said though? They're the most banned author. <laughs> because these books just suck so much? That was enough but also the criticism for elitist, sexist, racist, xenophobic. Yeah, those aren't very good. In December 2016, the Royal Mint discussed featuring Blyton, who had been dead for, you know, 40 years or so at this point, on a commemorative 50p coin, but dismissed the idea because she was, quote, known to have been a racist, sexist, homophobe, and not a very well-regarded writer. <laughs> yeah, yikes. So someone was raised their hand in a meeting and was like, why don't we put the super famous... Children's author, all the kids love her, Enid Blyton, on this coin, he or she, whoever suggested that was shot down because... Someone was like, one, oh, they're this racist. just became a roast. Here we go. <laughs> so, now let's talk about Enid's personal life. Okay. She was married to Major Hugh Alexander Pollock, but the marriage became troubled for years and according to memoirs, Blyton began a, quote, series of affairs. Uh -huh. including a lesbian relationship with one of her children's nannies. Yikes. <laughs> Enid was ready to share literature with anybody who was just happened to be nearby. Uh, but I'm not done because not only was she having a series of affairs, one of which with a lesbian affair with her children's nannies, mm -hmm. and this is despite her well-documented homophobia, by the way, in 1941, Blyton met a London surgeon with whom she began a serious affair. Oh, this one's serious. <laughs> Her husband discovered the liaison and threatened mm -hmm. to initiate divorce proceedings against Edith Blyton, but fearing that exposure of her adultery would ruin her public image, which is already so hot, it was ultimately agreed <laughs> that Blyton would instead file for divorce instead. I can't be known as, a, as an adulterer <laughs> on top of all this other shit. That will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The camel's got a shitload of straws already. And so, she negotiated with her husband to say, no, 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 let me divorce you instead of the other way around. <laughs> and he agreed. And according to a memoir, Blyton promised that if he admitted to infidelity, she would allow him parental access to their daughters. So, in other words, she said... It's going to look bad for you, I know, but you need to spare me in my career, so I'm going to divorce you. But if you go out and publicly say, no, I was the one having adultery, if you'd lie and say that about yourself, I, Enid Blyton, will allow you to have parental access to our daughters. So that's shitty enough, but he does it. She got what she wanted, mm -hmm. but after the divorce, 
he was forbidden to contact them, and Blyton ensured he was subsequently unable to find work in publishing. Paul, (laughs) is Is this this not the shittiest person? (laughs) Is this fucking bag still alive? She died in 1968. Uh, I was going to say, let's kill her. So, uh, Pollock, which is the husband that she shed all over here, Mm -hmm. after the divorce, he eventually resumed his heavy drinking and was forced to petition for bankruptcy in 1950. And that's on top of not being allowed to see his children, which he was promised he would be able to see them if he lied and said he had an affair, which (laughs) she had the affair. (laughs) Like, I don't know if I've ever heard of a shittier scenario. She sounds like the Charlie Sheen of the first half of the 20th century. Then we got the actual Charlie Sheen. Except she also wrote a series of terrible books that are inexplicably popular anyway. (laughs) Well, he made a show that's terrible and inexplicably popular. Now, my last note is my most important note. There was a note on Wikipedia that said, she loved tennis and her love of tennis Uh included playing naked. (laughs) <laughs> with nude tennis being a common practice in those days among the more <laughs> elite members of the middle class. <laughs> Why? I can't think of any group of people I want to see play tennis. Okay, so tennis naked is already like, look, what's the most like awkward kind of gross thing you could do with a body that's not very good? Like an athlete, you, when you see athletes play tennis on TV, they look like athletes playing tennis. But when you see someone who's not an athlete playing tennis, there's a lot of jiggle and bouncing and shaking. It's a very jiggle, oh, yeah. bounce and shake sport, right? Oh, baby. Nothing but like making grunting noises, swinging your arms, swinging your hips, flopping around. This is a Seinfeld it. episode. Remember? There's good naked and there's bad naked. It was, it was tennis a bad naked? Well... Jerry's girlfriend been. is nude all the time and Jerry doesn't like it because she starts like trying to open pickle jars right, and coughing. Like, like fixing a bicycle is something you're not yes. supposed to do naked. And George tells Jerry he's a spoiled, spoiled man. So, <laughs> so I feel like tennis is another one of those things that is a bad naked activity. But if you oh, yeah. said uh, not only is this going to happen, but it's going to be common among the upper class and elite, uh, the British upper class and elite, people with um, flabby gray bodies. Yeah, and you should look up Enid Blyton. I did. She is a, a handsome woman. Yeah, it's just wear clothes. <laughs> like, you don't have to be naked to play tennis. It feels like a good way to take a tennis ball to the tit. <sighs> Which would hurt. Yeah, but if that happened to her, or if she hit someone else in the tit, she'd make them say, oh, I'm the one who hit you in the tit. And then she'd ruin their career. (laughs) Apologize to my tit. You hit me. (laughs) So that's Eden Blyton. She sucked. Yeah. Everyone out there, if you liked Naughty as a kid, or if you're reading Naughty to your children, stop. Because Enid Blyton does not deserve any more money in her. I mean, she's long gone, but you know what I mean. She doesn't need your support. Her family should suffer. (laughs) Well... She was number seven, right? She was seven. But speaking of suffering, Uh I wanted to uh, give a quick plug to a recent scenario where I suffered because I was on the hot seat getting quizzed by Brandon Uh to find out if I was smarter than a fifth grader. Barely. No, it's not barely. I was. So, this is our latest Patreon bonus episode. It was just released and this is where Brandon quizzed me to find out if I was smarter than a fifth grader. Um, and you can listen to that episode right now at patreon.com slash tennis pod. 
Not only will you get instant access to that, but you'll also get access to our second most recent bonus episode, which was true but fun facts about your favorite and least favorite celebrities. So you can listen to that shit right now at patreon.com slash tennis pod. Good deal. So you have three, five, six, and eight left. Oh, God damn. You won't get any of them. So I'm just going to start reading uh, some books, see if you recognize them. How about A Hazard of Hearts? No, never heard of this. Okay, well, number three is Barbara Cartland. Have you heard that name? Barbara Cartland? I do not recognize that name. She sold at least 500 million and up to 1 billion books in the romance genre. 723 books. If you have time to write 723 books, then mm-hmm. your books cannot be that good. They're, it's just an impossible... Unless you're employing an army of ghosts who are able <laughs> well, to write for you. I mean, that has to be what's happening here. Uh, I just Googled her. What the fuck is this? <laughs> what the fuck is this? She's have you seen this? Her face? Are you talking just about her? Google... Yeah, no. Her no, first I know. and last name and click images. Barbara Cartland. I don't even know what to make of this. Do you want me to describe what I see? Describe it. She looks like Barbara Bush if Barbara Bush was portraying an old drag queen. She's wearing ridiculously flowery, overflowing with ruffles, pink dresses. I'm looking at multiple pic like dozens of pictures with the same basic theme. But you know Mimi from the Drew Carey show? Yeah, she has Mimi from Drew Carey's makeup. Well, she had connections to the royal family. look at her teeth. Her teeth are brown. (laughs) Well, she's British and all British people have disgusting teeth. Right, Brandon? Say it. Well, Babs Cartland has baked bean teeth. Okay. Well, let me tell the folks at home about about old Babs Cartlin. She wrote 723 books. Again, shouldn't be physically possible. Her full name is Dame Mary Barbara Hamilton Cartland. She was born in 1901 and died in 2000. She was an English novelist who wrote romance novels. Her 723 novels were translated into 38 languages and she continues to be referenced in the Guinness World Record for the most novels published in a single year in 1976. She specialized in 19th century Victorian area pure romance. Her novels all... It's the easiest time to write sexy uh, time books because they weren't allowed to do anything. They had to keep on all their layers of clothes in the Victorian area. So, it'd just be like, you know, we hurried to the coat room and took off our gloves and held hands fucking sexily. (laughs) Fucking sexily. (laughs) Well, I like how... In the book, they're saying they held hands because they have to be tame. And then the Uh next words are fucking sexily. That's my, um, (laughs) that's my writing. That's like me and Enid Blyton on the same path. She became one of London's most prominent society figures, often presenting herself in a pink chiffon gown, plumed hat, blonde wig, and heavy makeup. She became one of Britain's most popular media personalities. So, I'm going to guess that you and I haven't really heard of her, but I'm going to guess our British listeners have. And according to an obituary published in the Daily Telegraph, Cartland reportedly broke off her first engagement to a man, to a guards officer, when she mm-hmm. learned about sexual intercourse and recoiled. Uh, whoa. This is when she was a young woman. So, this, I was right. 
This claim fits with her image in later life as a representative of a generation for whom such matters were never discussed, but sits uneasily with her having produced work in the 1920s which was controversial at the time for its sexual subject matter. And lastly, she claimed in her life to have turned down 49 proposals for marriage from different men. Because uh, she's just so sexy and hot. Okay, so I'm looking at pictures of her young. Uh, she was a very attractive woman in her youth. Okay, creeper alert. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, her like adult youth. Brandon's fucking drooling over here. That's Barbara Cartland, number three. Yeah. Have you heard of the book The Carpetbaggers? Is that like the boxcar children? No. No, I haven't. Okay. Well, then you probably haven't heard of number five, which is Harold Robbins. Nope. Never heard his name in my life. 750 million sales. His kids will probably never have to work and their kids will probably never have to work and I've never heard this dude's name in my life. Well, consider this. Uh, Other than J.K. Rowling, he's Mm -hmm. written the least number of books to make it to the top 11. 23 books. Now, compare that to old Barb's Cartland, who wrote 723 This guy wrote just 23 and he's just two spots behind her at number five. Most notable works were The Carpetbaggers, The Adventurers, Tycoon. He lived between 1916 and 1997. And his 1952 novel, A Stone for Danny Fisher, was adapted into a 1958 motion picture, King Creole, 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 which starred Elvis Presley. King Creole. Yeah. So that was made into a movie with Elvis. That's it. That's Harold. That's all there is to say about him. There's not a single other notable thing about his life. Okay. So, how am I going to not guess the the remaining ones? So, let's see. Six and eight. So, eight you might maybe get because this person, before he became a novelist, Mm -hmm. he wrote for television. He created the Patty Duke show, I Dream of Jeannie and Heart to Heart. Holy hell. This dude is also going to be richer than the dickens charles dickens (laughs) i don't know (laughs) yes (laughs) hey where's charles dickens on here though really yeah no shit but he won an oscar in 1948 for the bachelor and the bobby soxer Mm -hmm. that was a great one that i loved his notable books are master of the game the other side of midnight rage of angels nothing you don't know no i don't know this guy sydney sheldon who sold up to 600 million books. You write mystery novels, right? Number eight, suspense, mystery, yeah. God damn, I didn't know about all the stuff he wrote for TV. This guy, this guy's grandkids aren't going to be working either. Nope, and he, uh, he, he didn't even start writing books till he was 50. He wrote for TV before that, and then he started writing best-selling romantic suspense novels. Oh, so I got plenty of time before I have to do anything meaningful. And yeah, you're right. You got plenty of time to do anything meaningful. Which hurts my feelings because I thought what we were doing right now was plenty meaningful. But... I got plenty of time. That's Sydney Sheldon, number eight. Listener of the show. Okay. So, uh, I think we're just down to six, right? Yeah, number six is left. And... This is a detective author. Detective books. And, in fact, he's Belgian, so... Oh, shit. Well, there goes <laughs> You're not my... Gonna get him. I was going to guess whoever wrote Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Who's that? Fuck, Brandon, all these, all these authors that should be on here, but no. Nope. Yeah, who's that fucker who wrote Sherlock Holmes? What's his name? Richard Scary? Scary? Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Where's his ass? Face only a mother could love. 
Number six is George, George's. I mean, it's spelled like George and then with an S on it. How do you say that? George's? Uh, I got to tell you, I don't know either. Okay. George's Simonon. Simon. Simonon. I think it's just George. George. <laughs> George. Stop it. Well, I'm if looking. If you do that just... one more time, I'm going to fucking lose it. Don't you dare do it again. Just call him George. Okay. George Simonon. He sold up to 700 million detective books, 570 different books. Most of them were novels, but he also wrote a bunch of short works as well. And he's best known as the creator of the fictional detective Jules Magre. 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 I can't can't do French accent. I think you mean Inspector Classeau. Yeah. No, that's it. He was capable of writing up to 80 pages per day. And his avoir included nearly 200 novels, over 150 novellas, several autobiographical works, numerous articles, and scores of pulp novels written under more than two dozen pseudonyms. That's George is Simonon, number six in the top 11. So you did it, Brandon. You got through the top 11 all by yourself. I would, I would not say I did it. So these are the top 11 best-selling fiction authors of all time. Number 11, Dr. Seuss, who's not really a doctor. He's also probably not a wife beater, so maybe I should take that back. <laughs> we'll have to redo the episode where Whoops. he says that. Nah, fuck it. <laughs> you only YOLO once. Let it ride. Number 10, Gilbert Patton. Number 9, J.K. Rowling. Number 8, Sidney Sheldon. He was the uh, guy who wrote all the TV stuff until he was age 50. Mm-hmm. Number seven, Enid Blyton. She's the naked tennis player who wrote really shitty kids books that were so shitty they were banned from libraries, including Naughty. Six is George Simonon, the last guy we talked about, who wrote detective novels. He's Belgian. Five is Harold Robbins, who wrote adventure books, including The Carpetbaggers. Number four is Danielle Steele, who wrote a lot and continues to write a lot of really bad romance novels. Number three is Barbara Cartland, who Brandon was very amused by her appearance because that's how brandon is mm-hmm. she has the guinness world record for most novels published in a single year number two is agatha christie who wrote a bunch of whodunits and number one william billy shakespeare with up to four billion units sold of his fiction works too many yeah too many well are you in the mood to read now are you inspired I feel like I just did read, so my, my reading cup is full. I'm going to go watch TV instead. I want to read some Enid Blyton. I want to read some Naughty because they weren't specific about what about the books was xenophobic or racist or homophobic, so I got to go find out now. <laughs> she just had like, the characters would go on like wild tangents that had nothing to do with the story. <laughs> In between the simple, super simple plot lines, there was a... Uh, anti-semitic rant in the middle by a fucking bird or something Uh, some random guy walks up on the street and like uh sir do you have the time no but can i tell you a thing or two about how many (laughs) jews really died in the holocaust (laughs) yeah thank you sir very good that's enid blyton uh yeah she sounds pretty terrible don't support her work don't read her books to your children But what you can do instead is rate us five stars and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And we're going to close out by patting ourselves on the back and reading some reviews. So great. First one comes from our friends at the Three Minute Lesson Podcast. 
This is on Apple Podcast. They say, this podcast pulls the top 10-ish list of interesting things you didn't even realize you wanted to know. And these two are hilarious! Jesus. The lists are great and the banter is even funny. You will look forward to their podcast. Here's a big one. This might be the biggest one I've ever done. Every week! <laughs> there was at least eight exclamation points. There's no way that audio is even going to come out where people can hear you. Well, I'll dub it back in then. Uh, but thank you. And that's the three-minute lesson podcast. By the way, it's a podcast. The episodes are literally three minutes, and it's just like learning different things. Pretty cool. So, one more here. Also on Apple Podcasts, this comes from Julie. She says, this is a genuinely funny duo playing a game anyone listening can follow along to. It's the kind of conversation I wish I could have with my friends if they would indulge my love of putting things in lists. You need new friends, Julie. For chill adults who want to learn things and have a good time, you know? Has banter, but is fun and humorous. Not the vapid stuff you'd find in other buddy podcasts. Man, vapid. ripping apart other podcasts. Vapid. vapid. God damn it. Yeah. Vapid. I know that word. Nine out of ten would recommend to a friend. Now, here's my problem with Julie. You can't just give us the ten out of ten. I mean, you wrote such a glowing review. The show is called Ten-ish. You can't just give us the ten out of ten. Come on. What'd you give us? Nine out of ten. Oh. I would have said eleven. Anyway. My ungrateful remarks aside, I want to thank Julie and the 3-Minute Listen Podcast for the reviews. And if you want your review read or yelled on this show, write a review for us and we'll read it. Brandon, we're going to end now. We're just two weeks away from the big episode 100. Yeah. And it's going to be fun. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm doing that questionnaire. You, have you seen the questions on it? No, I'm not, I'm not looking. Okay. I'm not supposed to look, right? Well, you can look at the questions if you want, although it'd be nah. better if you didn't, I guess. So, I'm Brandon hasn't even it. seen the questions, but if you've taken the questionnaire at tennispod.com slash 100, you know that we're going to have some very interesting discussions. Anyway, we'll look forward to that episode and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>